We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense of Adelium coming at you on the 13th of May, Our Lady of uh, Lady of Fatima Day and St. Robert Bellman with my good friend Ryan Grant of Mediatrics Press who has translated this book, this book, this book. I'll just keep, I'll just keep pulling them out, Ryan. If you want to go ahead and say hi to everybody, I'll be done by the time you get done. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again for having me on for uh, all your listeners. Oh, no problem. No problem. Anything to help out and get more people to not only buy all their books, because their books are fantastic. I mean, it's liquid gold and paper. But to get more people to know about this guy we're talking about today, uh, one of your favorite saints, I think, St. Bellamin. So why is he important? He's important because not only was he a great theological writer, not only was he a great scholar, uh, but he was a great saint. So you have a lot of writers in the tradition who were good, and they, they lived good lives, and they were noted for you know, uh, upright life and whatnot. You think of people you want to throw in, uh, Dominicans like John of St. Thomas or Bosius. You think again of, um, if, if you know any of these authors, which most people don't, but um suarez people have heard that name anyway jesuit um in that back when that was a good thing right? <laughs> uh you know cardinal de lugo toledus um you think of other other theologians of the tradition all good you know people but bellerman stands out uh, because he's a saint and he's one of those very rare intellectuals and scholars that also had transforming union and lived a full mystical life so and he's also um, it's really a great model for in both sides of things being in the height of, uh, you know, the Counter-Reformation. His works pretty much were the most important works of the Counter-Reformation. Other people did things on different subjects that he treated on, you know, sometimes better. And, he, you know, he notes, hey, check, check out this book and this book, you know, in, in his controversies. Mm -hmm. But the controversies were such a great work systematizing so much of the Catholic faith and the defense of it from the early Protestants in the 16th century. And it, be, and it was so important that Protestants themselves saw how important it was, and they concentrate so much of their energy on arguing against Bellarmine for the next, I don't know, two, three hundred years. And then in theology, Bellarmine continued to be probably one of the most important writers in the, the seven, late 17th century. Bossuet, who was a uh, French, French bishop, um, Unfortunately, addicted to Gallicanism, uh, the, the idea that the whatever the Pope's you know teaching us has to have consent of the French Church first, right? Um, more or less, you know, it's like a, a for, it's a reborn form of conciliarism when you get down to it. Mm. And the uh, in Bossuet, who was a great writer and also a very good theologian, he lamented that still no French writer has been able to overtake Bellarmine in all the theological schools. He's still the most influential, well-read, well-studied. Uh, Saint Alphonsus Liguori cites Bellarmine very frequently. And a lot of in his major theological works, the um, you know it's just that name that is important. Even when you get into the 19th century and the, the lead up to Vatican I and, and with papal infallibility, the arguments, for example, between Dom Guerin Jay, who's the founder of Salem, you know, the liturgical year, mm -hmm. well, he went he, with Penn to defend papal infallibility against Dullinger, who ended up becoming a heresiarch and leaving the church and rejecting uh, papal infallibility of Vatican I. So they, they argue in print about papal infallibility, and all of their arguments more or less turn on Bellarmine. You know, again, so even all the way in the 19th century. Speaking of uh, 
the uh, like Francis de Sales. You brought French up mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, Ah, the this gentleman saint. Yeah, that's it. Right. Uh, I think I photocopied it. He talks about three books that he asked his parents to bring him: the mm-hmm. Bible, his breviary, and the controversies of Saint Bell of his good friend Father Bellarmine. Right. So Francois de Sales, when he was a seminarian, when he was coming for uh, no, he was a priest. I'm sorry, he was coming to you know be consecrated to bishop. Saint Robert Bellarmine was on the commission examining new bishops that uh, were, were being sent into to con- difficult territory. So Saint-Francois de Saul came down and met with uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, and they, they, stri- they struck up a great friendship because, you know, saints normally recognize each other. And they had, uh, you know, very, they continued in letters for a very long time. So that, uh, and, and since St. Robert Bellarmine had been, had been a bishop uh, for three years, and actually was noted for having been an excellent bishop, uh, Saint-Francois is, is asking him, hey, uh, what do I do to be a good bishop? And they, they write in different letters. And then once he is the bishop in Geneva, apart from all the heroic things he does mm-hmm. to, uh, to to reconcile people to the faith and defend Catholics in the faith, uh, to prevent various armies from taking out what was going on on the, on the people and whatnot, um, you know, he's asking St. Robert, what do I do about this convent of nuns, you know, that uh, you know has this, this and this problem? You know, how do I manage it for the good of souls? And again, uh, a lot of the advice he gets and the fruit of it is also what makes his way its way into his spiritual works, um, such as uh, Introduction of the Devout Life, where he's addressing, you know, a, a female soul, and then uh, Love of God, where he's addressing a male soul, kind of as a, uh, a type, as it were, for, you know, women in general, men in general, men, everybody in general, too. It's not like it's only a book for women or a book for men. But that's that's the in the motif and a lot of the instructions that he's giving are, are things that he's also you know gotten from letters that he's written to saint robert bellarmine so it, a lot of the influence that goes into saint francis de Sales works actually comes from bellarmine also, ultimately i also heard the catechism the baltimore catechism is a direct product from bellarmine's catechism um yes and no actually that's a little bit different so uh, the Baltimore Catechism, so what happened is that when you get the, the lead-up to Vatican I, mm-hmm. they wanted to take Bellarmine's Catechism and make that kind of the universal catechism of the whole church. So Pius IX was very big on that, mm-hmm. really wanted to push that. And what happens is that the work of Vatican I gets interrupted by the breakout of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which is that the, the, the Prussians had now consolidated their power in all the, the conflicts in Germany. And so most of the German states were under the Prussian crown. The ones that weren't at least agreed to take the course of the of action that the Prussians would then, you know, take on. And the big thing is, hey, look, we got Germans living over in these areas that are now French territory ever since the days of Louis XIV. It's time for us to take it back. And, and there, there's other complicated things that lead up to the Franco-Prussian War. And so, and then although I've mostly studied from the military history side, not from the political side, but so they, they go at it and in, in the midst of this really devastating war, then it's threatening, it's threatened to become a big world war too, because of, you know, obligations and treaties from different countries. And it ended up not drawing, drawing in everybody, mostly because the Austrians refused to get involved. So nobody else got into it, but all the bishops of Vatican one, especially the, you know, the groups and various countries they had to break up and go back to their own countries and manage their seas during during the conflict and then after that uh french troops of course were withdrawn from rome and they were the thing that was protecting uh, the papal territory from the onset of the revolutionary troops in italy mm-hmm. and so as a result the the pope lost all his independence and his temporal sovereignty so they the uh, and the italian government refused to allow them to bring a council to bear so that uh, is what ultimately ends up happening to kind of squash all the work for Bellarmine being kind of the universal catechism of the church, which is something that uh, Pius IX really wanted to make happen. So in the United States, though, the bishops here were very opposed to Bellarmine's catechism being made the universal catechism. They actually didn't want it, and they resisted it as, as much as when they heard this was going to be brought up, they, they made the protest and they resisted. So the Baltimore catechism really didn't, uh, it doesn't resemble Bellarmine's style. Bellarmine's style is that of a dialogue, mm-hmm. which is uh, one of the, especially for a humanist in the 16th century, that's one of the devices that you would want to use because it ma- is, it's the same style as like Plato's dialogues. It's the, it's the preferred style in antiquity for a lot of uh, philosophical discussion. 
So Bellarmine, it's a dialogue. So the, in the um, the small catechism, the uh, student asks a question and the teacher answers it. In the longer catechism, which is the one we publish, which is uh, uh, this one, the uh, teacher asks the question. Yeah, there you go. The teacher asks the question and the student answers it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but it's longer, and so the small one was designed for people that were either illiterate and somebody would read it to them and they would learn it that way, or it was designed for people who were, uh, you know, able to read but not terribly learned in general, right, and, and that, uh, you know, didn't have any formal education. So the longer catechism was actually meant for people who had some kind of education and uh, to teach them the faith and, and again, give examples. And it was mo it meant for teachers also to utilize when they themselves would go for a teaching catechism. Because a lot of catechism was where you'd have a group of boys you didn't have books you could give them and expect them to memorize. It had to be memorized orally, and you would memorize the main point, and then you would illustrate it with a wider story, reference to a saint, and these sorts of things. And that's largely how catechetics worked in that way. It's mostly oral, because the people you're catechizing are the vast majority are illiterate. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are literate, you're still forming the basis of what they're reading with oral instruction and oral education. So in this country, um, Catholics, of course, are a minority for most, much of that time. But in all Anglo culture since the Reformation, Catholics are a conquered people when we want to do things like our fellows as Catholic as we could possibly do it. So Protestant methods focus principally on reading, and naturally, because they, you know, you're going to focus on reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. So in, in any teaching, for example, of their catechisms, like the Westminster Catechism and things like that, um, you're going to get them to memorize the way you're getting them to memorize scripture, right? And that's just kind of the, the, the notion of teaching religious instruction in Anglo, Anglo culture in general. So in our country, it was the kind of the same thing. And so a, a, a catechism that is a dialogue that's meant to awaken the love of faith in the student and have him memorize the, the points along with so much of the oral instruction that's kind of opening his mind to the, the teachings and the catechism, that doesn't suit sticking everybody in a little classroom making them memorize all these points, which is what uh, the Baltimore was designed to do. So I'm actually not a huge fan of the style of instruction in the Baltimore catechism. In term, it, it's teaching is, is, is right, but it's um, you know making everybody memorize things. So it's got to be that plus more. And that's why I think the the older form of continental catechetical instruction actually makes a lot more sense, only because you look at the methods, the methodology, at least as it develops in the 20th century. Anyway, I won't speak so much for the 19th, but for the 20th, where it's, all right, get them kids in the desks, get them memorizing this Baltimore catechism, and great, now you're good Catholics. Well, what happened at Vatican II? Well, those good Catholics went to Woodstock. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and some came back, and they did remember, and it was good that they remembered, but they were missing something when it all happened, because if they are formed with the heart as well as with the intellect, then what would have happened for the most part is people would have, you know, stayed, kept the faith. You know, you would have had a lot more people, of course, resisting so many of the changes because they hey, wait a minute. Instead, you had people where the head was formed but not the heart, and they said, no, well, truth changed. I, I, I'm out of here, man. Let's, let's head off to Woodstock. Forget and, about and question that, 92. People, I mean, which is just a, a um, hyperbolic way of saying people just gave up the faith. People just stopped practicing the faith, mm -hmm. ultimately. Now, all the books you translated, and I, I'm leaving out one or two because I didn't want my desk to oh. fall over. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one, too. I didn't see this one in there. So this is the... I know. It's somewhere around here. I was looking for it. I don't know where I put it. I yeah. was, that's what I was looking for before we started going. Well, I got the blue one. I don't know where the red <laughs> one is. I have that. I don't know where. <laughs> Somebody, right. somebody stole it, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, which was your favorite to do? Why? And yeah, I mean, yeah. What was your favorite? Yeah. Which Which of all these were favorite that just got you? Like, wow, this right. was really cool to do. Um, the one I absolutely hated doing was the one on the Roman Pontiff, even though that was <laughs> cool to do um, because it was the longest one, and you would get to a section which, in the original is like this big uh -huh. and I don't want to, I don't want to drag it over here, but um, it is this massive book and it, uh, you get to, and now let's look at the testimony of the Greek fathers, like five or six pages. And, you know, it was like, Oh boy. And that, cause that's the worst work because that's when 
um, you know, he's giving an extract from a larger work, and I'm not always sure the propriety of this or that term in, ter in the way that uh, we've been translating it throughout the course in the Ciceron neo Ciceronian Renaissance style. And now here's a church father who wrote this in the fifth century, and it's Bellarmine's translation to his Greek. And so I've gained to look up the propriety, make sure I've got this rendered in the way that people usually do it. And so that means I got to go up into um, Minya and I got to look up the original Greek and I've got to make sure how this quote was and, and you know, get the sense of how it should be translated by looking in the work. So any of that is in, it's going to triple and quadruple the time. So I look at those pages like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and then um, when you get to, but then so Purgatory had, you know, that was a smaller work and that was actually really enjoyable because of the um you know things you didn't expect so bellarmine's exegesis his exegetical commentary on scripture mm -hmm. is just phenomenal and it, it was something that um it, and it's always you know, i've always noted it going through his other works too but here it was especially um difficult passages some passages i'd never even thought of as having anything to do with purgatory uh the, the whole paul's phrase baptism of the dead mm -hmm. bellarmine shows in there how that phrase and even by the testimony of various fathers is shown to be about purgatory and it, uh, it other because otherwise it doesn't really make much sense is is what what, what he shows and it was just brilliant exegesis on that and then the one of the mass too is the same thing in, in terms of the like, on the defending you know the mass from scripture it, it again he would just come up with these passages that were just i almost fell out of my chair with one uh john four and the john woman four. at the well yeah. and, he, and he says how the uh, bellarmine shows how the the whole discourse is basically on the future the coming public worship of the church which will be the mass and not rooted in this temple in Jerusalem or this temple here, but it's going to be public. It's going to be the mass, and you know that was, that was when I almost fell out of my chair. I've never seen that before, and it was it was just uh, dramatic. And even if somebody could show it was wrong, just the um, just just the breadth and the, the the originality of looking at those things. Although I don't, you know, it was fairly convincing, so I don't see why it would be wrong. But uh, but I'll leave that for the scriptural exegetes anyway. So it's uh, but, but it was just it, brilliant stuff. You just Wow, and then um, and then also the one on the mass. That was another one where the section, certain sections, I almost fell out of my chair just because re you're reading what the Protestants are doing. It's like, huh, that's funny. This, this sounds a lot like 1965. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, name your date. <laughs> right, I know. And then he challenges the uh, the Protestants. He said, you know, because they're attacking the canon, which in the ordinary form of the mass is the first Eucharistic prayer, mm -hmm. and. He says now now we've shook because he's just reviewed the antiquity of the canon how so much of this you know large sections of it are already cited in the fourth century and and held by them to be ancient so he said the vast majority of the canon is, you know is obviously from the ancients from the fathers from the period which your own authors you protestants call the best right period in the you know of the you know the of the church so we've shown the antiquity of our canon. Let you show the antiquity of your canons, which were only written 10, 20 years ago. And I almost fell out of my chair. It's like, again, that sounds like the 1970s because we have all these other Eucharistic prayers, uh, Eucharistic prayer two, which is falsely said to go back to the other church. It's got about 18 lines from the early writer Hippolytus and they're all, or, you know, 18 lines, uh, words, they're all fragments. The vast majority of it was filled in around those fragments in a bar and testavere as, um, Louis Bouillet, who was the one, the guy who did it, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it tells us in his memoirs. So that the whole line of argument that priests were sold on, that, oh yeah, this is the oldest prayer in the church. It's completely false. And the people who originated that were lying and they knew they were lying because they, when they put that out there mm -hmm. and then other people just repeated it. Oh, well, the experts said this. And, uh, and it turns out that was completely false. And the same thing for three and, three and four, the, you know, they're not ancient, but Eucharist prayer one that is speaking to the ordinary form, or again, in the traditional mass, the canon, mm -hmm. this goes back to ancient times. It may very well have St. Peter as the author for at least some of it. So, and, and, with, and that was something too, I hadn't really stopped to consider as I'm not a massive liturgical historian, at least not for the ancient times. And looking at uh, that aspect of the canon really is that old, so much of it, whereas in the fourth century, they're talking about like some of the prayers that precede the consecration. And, and uh, Leo the Great says in this prayer is of immemorial usage. He says that in the fourth century, which suggests <laughs> at least 100 years, if not two. You know? <laughs> yes, I saw one of the, uh, whoever you got to write the forward, I think, wrote that this was the best apologetic book on the mass that's in print. Right. Uh, that would have been um, Dr. John Joy. 
who's the uh, chief theologian for the Diocese of Madison. And it, um, and it was actually really kind of in the right, because it, it was the, the, the best defense of the Tridentine Mass, he says, um, from the greatest of Tridentine theologians, which Bellarmine certainly was. He had a sense of humor, I mean, a great sense of humor. You can read while reading it. He's, you know, he's just not a smart aleck, but he liked poking mm-hmm. jabs and get a little kick while doing it, didn't he? Right. It, it, it adds some lightheartedness to the work, and, it, and he's, he's not afraid to have jokes. He, he talks about how the um, certain his Protestant historians at the time that had written a book, the Centuriators of, of Majburg, they were... Uh, Lutherans, and they basically written a history to show why the early church was Lutheran and not Catholic. Mm-hmm. And later, it was Protestants themselves abandoned it because it was uh, they held by them generally to be worthless. You know, they ignore so much, only isolate certain things that are that are taken out of context as much as possible. And it, but it was the first work of its kind that was a comprehensive history. So it took a lot of people aback, and it was a while before people could uh, attack it. Usually, like Cardinal Baronius gets the credit for. Um, you know, challenging them with his own history, but really the point-by-point refutation was really from from Bellarmine in the controversies. And he, and he picked up in the work that other people had been doing. Bell, uh, Cardinal Baronius was one of his very great friends. And actually, Cardinal Baronius, since I mentioned him, uh, since we're plugging stuff today, I might as well keep plugging. So, Plug it all. Uh, so Cardinal Baronius is another book we uh-huh. sell. Uh, it's a fantastic biography, history, written by lady in the 19th century. Uh, it's Basically, it's her translation of um, a German, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, of an Italian work from Cardinal Bacci on, on Baronius. And so it's really good, great read, great in his spirituality. So, again, since we're plugging stuff, I'll <laughs> drag Plug it all, here. like I said. But <laughs> yeah, so Baronius was his very good friend, and he had furnished a lot of things in history. So, a lot of Bellarmine's historical arguments are also informed with by his great friendship with Baronius. But that hadn't really completely developed at the time he wrote the controversy. So, a lot of it is still his own original work mm-hmm. that that's coming out. There's yeah. a great line in the uh, the Red Book, Volume One, uh, Roman Pontus, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, Bellman's talking about Luther. He goes, uh, "Luther never had a uh, had a miracle. Oh wait, he did have one. It was after he died. He stunk so bad in the middle of winter in a tin can, air tin can, airtight tin can, that the stench was so great they couldn't move him. Hence." The only miracle of Luther. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's another one um, where actually it's in the book of the Mass again, mm-hmm. where he, if he begins in the canon, he says, now Luther, <clears throat> uh, you know, after quoting a few just outrageous things from Luther, then he stops and he says, but Luther gets a lot more serious in his book on the abomination of the canon. And he quotes quotes from that where Luther says, if uh if you should hear the word canon, run like a devil was approaching you. <laughs> Just as he'd set up all these little jokes like that, and he does that kind of, they're peppered throughout. But in his life, he was a very jovial uh, person in general. He just, you know, like like so many saints, they had this joy about everything. And he was always good at, he, he had a great wit. He was good at cracking jokes. And when, uh, when the occasion called for it, he was uh, for a time superior for the Jesuits in Naples. And he was also superior of the Jesuit University of Rome, the Roman College, uh, which, which uh, the Gregorian University. And so he would, it would always, you know, have, uh, have quick jokes to crack for people. He also loved music, and he would sit down at recreation and and uh, he played himself several instruments. He sang, and he also, you know, would teach, you know, teach other uh, brothers how to play instruments. So Jesuit brothers that were the at the school, he would also take you know, like some of the uh, so if anyone's ever li- listened to Mont- Monteverdi, for example, Claudio Monteverdi, you've heard, um, you know, Madrigale, right? They're the, which the Madrigals, they're a type of poetic text, usually love poetry. So Bellamy gets a hold of one and he's just marveling at the harmonies and, the, and it wasn't from Monteverdi, it was another author that was copying his style. And, he, and he's marveling at the, the love poetry, or not the, the love poetry, at the, uh, the melodies and the harmonies. But then he sees the love poetry and he's like, hmm. This is going to have to go. So on the spot, because he, he was great at composing verse, he was great at composing poetry. So he sat down and wrote a uh, a new song about love of God, and set it to all the music and all the harmonies that were that were in this tract. And he would have the the brothers rehearse at it. And so it actually, and so that happened frequently too. They would repurpose secular music and repurpose it for the liturgy when it was especially harmonious and beautiful. Uh, they had various types of polyphony. 
usually setting it to scripture. So Bellarmine actually, he just said he made his own hymn right there and set it up. Uh, and he was actually very good at that. He also, uh, Pope Clement VIII one time had a, a challenge to, you know, between, uh, he asked St. Robert Bellarmine and a couple other cardinals to compose a hymn to St. Mary Magdalene. So Bellarmine thought it was all a joke. And so he just, he went, but he composed a very beautiful, uh, using um, a, uh, you know, a Horatian sapphic meter to compose this wonderful four uh, four-line stanza hymn to Mary Magdalene. And then, and the Pope read it. Pope Clement VIII read it. He said, "Oh, this is absolutely amazing!" And as he ordered it to be placed in the Roman breviary for Saint Mary Magdalene's uh, feast day, huh. which, uh, and he says in his autobiography, he was kind of shocked by that because he thought it was a joke. He didn't think his own <laughs> work would be taken and put into the into the breviary. So, so why did you take this project up, anyways? Uh, what, what was the genesis of it? Um, Probably I drank too much. <laughs> what actually happened was I was sitting down with uh, a fraternity priest who was looking to, uh, in it, in the area, was looking to go out and um, try to convert various set of Acantists mm-hmm. and get them to come back. And he wanted to know you know what Bellarmine said because he did, his Latin wasn't good enough. And so we'd gone over it and we'd gone over other places where Bellarmine says you need a council to, to depose the Pope and things of that sort. I've talked about that in Taylor Marshall. I don't want to rehash that sort right. of thing right now. Um, and, and plus the other reason I want to talk about that is because the book is 700 pages long and everybody only cares about those four little pages in that one <laughs> little section, which ultimately, you know, still debating it anyway. Yeah, the rest uh, of the book is really good. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the book is really good. That's why I'd rather leave that whole discussion for something else. Right, right. Um, but anyway, so we got done with it and I was just kind of looking over and I was just like, wow. Now, why has nobody ever translated this? This was back in 2011 or 12, I think. And so I kind of put that, in, you know, put, buttonholed that. All right, I'm going to have to. So I started working on little bits, of it, but I was also teaching Latin at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I got freed up from teaching Latin. And then I started the press. And I said, you know what? It's time to start looking at whether, you know, how long it would take to actually sit down and translate things. And, and that's when I did that catechism of St. Peter Canisius, which, again, since we're plugging everything, I'll just pull that out. Um, but Who, anyway, Benedict, so I did the, that. Benedict XVI uh, grew up with that one, right? Yeah, he did. And although the one he had, it was the same one, but with further commentary, the fathers and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is a larger version of that. And you know, he actually, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth said, in my father's generation, the catechism was just called the Canisius, right? Because of the importance of St. Peter Canisius. But, uh, but anyway, so then I just kind of buttonholed that. And then I did that in about a week and a half. And then I, I had somebody look at it to edit and clean it up. And then I said, you know, now is probably the time to start Bellarmine. So that's when I started to go fund me. I was trying to get that moving and in the end um you know i just just kept going with it and i said wow it was great uh then i saw later father kenneth baker got into it and he had been working on it for a while apparently and so then he produced also a very good translation of it and then i was thinking huh i wonder if i should quit and then he switched to do the sermons i said well i'm gonna keep going <laughs> and so i just gotta right now i'm working on on i'm trying to debate i've got two different things that i've been doing in terms of the translation one is uh, finishing up the one on the church triumphant, which deals with relics and images. And, and that's, again, where you get to those page, page, page of just the Greek from Latin fathers <laughs> defending and be like, oh, boy. We're getting into something different and dealing with that later, which is what I've kind of been doing is skipping ahead, getting certain books out. And so I'm th- looking at moving into the sacraments now and try to finish up the sacraments this year. So which is uh, sacraments in general, confirmations baptism confirmation uh four books on the eucharist which precede the one of the mass that we you were holding up earlier how many and, uh how, how big is the books on the eucharist you said four of them there's four of them they're all really big so that one on the mass is the smaller section <laughs> of the <laughs> so the other four are much bigger so actually it'd probably be about the same size or bigger than on the roman pontiff with all of it man so what is uh yeah like we said you've done all these conferences i have about 98% of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we've never been able to get everything you've wanted to talk about in there. What was a story on Bellarmine that you've wanted to bring up in the lectures, but never was able to do it? Oh, boy. There's a couple of things. I guess, um, you know, there's one that, that it's kind of a Bellarmine on politics and political questions. Mm-hmm. And especially in the earlier conferences I was doing, I was still reading a lot of his political works because I had to get 
the Octarium, uh, which is uh, a later publishing of a lot of manuscript works of his and principally letters and other things, but also his work on the Congregation of the Index and in other places. So I wanted to get a hold of all that before I talk about Bellarmine and politics. But there's a persistent idea that Bellarmine was a crypto Republican and wanted to support Republican government and, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, I guess, supported popular sovereignty as we conceive of it now. And that was started way back in the 1920s, right on the eve of his beatification. Father Kenneth Ryan, who was a Jesuit at CU at Catholic University of America at the time in the 20s, he wrote an article, he and someone else, they co-wrote an article on uh, Bellarmine as the, 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 the ghost writer of the American Constitution. So apart from repeating certain myths about Jefferson reading Bellarmine at length, uh, which he did not, and at the most, if Jefferson read anything from Bellarmine, it would have been because he read extracts of Bellarmine made by Robert Filmer on political economy. And of course, that book by Filmer, he's trying to argue against any notion of popular sovereignty and in favor of royal absolutism, which is something that indeed Bellarmine did not support. And, but the, the thing is that, so, so then it, it treats that, oh yeah, so Bellarmine has all those same Republican ideas as, as American government has. Now, and this is not to attack American government or the Constitution, because those things may be good or not on other principles. But the fact is that Bellarmine himself uh, did not support those principles at all. So it, when you get down to what he what he actually says, the first place you see in his writings that where he addresses any question is in On the Roman Pontiff. In the first six or seven books, it's all on politics and political economy. And the reason is uh, it was taken as kind of a general rule that the best form of government is the one that Christ would have given to the church. Mm -hmm. So Calvin, John Calvin is the very first person in the whole tradition to argue that aristocracy is superior to monarchy. And that's really an, an important point uh, because that nobody, nobody in the tradition argued that, not even Aristotle, that um, not even Plato, really. And so it, the, the idea that the, that the aristocracy, you know, um, basically the better, wiser men of uh, the more affluent men in, in a society are the best place to, to run that society fully, which is part of the notion of a republic, a republican government, not not essentially necessarily has to be your elite, your rich guys, or your, your affluent guys, but it does, there is a certain class of people who will be put forward over other rulers. So Calvin argues that this is the best form of government by necessity, because that is the form of government that if Christ gave to the church, the Calvinist Presbytery Council represents, right? And so, you know, if the aristocracy is the best form of the church, then Calvin's system is, in fact, the very best system. And therefore, as a, as a proof for in the Calvin and the Institutes uses that as a proof for why, uh, you know, his system and his church is the, the right and the true church and the one that best corresponds to, to Christ, what Christ established in the gospel. So to refute that argument, Bellarmine shows that monarchy is the best system of government. And he does this in two ways. The first way is when you consider monarchy outside of the conditions of this world, so without factoring in fallen human nature, original sin, etc., just monarchy itself simply excels all other form of governments. But then, and, it, and it's again, citing the ancients, citing even, even to, to, to the Iliad and Homer, right, and all, all these different things that in writers and the church fathers and and as far as I can tell, he's on solid ground on that. Um, now, whether, because now, now this is one place though I've heard from people that have read the book, say, well, I, I just didn't like when he's saying monarchy is the best form of government. He's not saying it's the only form of government, mm -hmm. and he's just saying it's the best. And then you add in the conditions of this world, all right, fallen human nature, corruption, uh, the, the, you know, the monarch can become tyrant and such things. And then he says that a mixed monarchy, a monarchy that's uh, temperatus, that, that's tempered, by elements of aristocracy and elements of democracy, that this would make the best form of government, the best um, you know, style of government, because then you have the, uh, you know, the, the eros, the, the, you know, the, the, the more affluent and better place to resist the king, as well as govern certain sections at, in their own right, as opposed to just being you know, deputies of the king which is also better than democracy or republicanism for Bellarmine, where you're basically elected over this thing and it's not yours. And so, it, which leads to, to well, people uh, getting rich off the system, which that, that would never happen here, of course. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi already had all that money before she went to Congress, right? Um, but anyway. <laughs> and NSA's listening. So, 
But um, anyway, and then democracy too, because those for the lowest elements could also be taken up from from any the whole mass of society can be taken up and placed over something by by the king, and they can enter you know the service of government. And this system, Bellarmine says, is the form of government that Christ gave the church. Namely, it's its divine institution, has all the elements of monarchy and of aristocracy and of democracy. So anybody and anybody from any part of the you know the, the the mass of men and any man can be raised up into the clergy right any any from you know into the religious life as as uh, you know monks and nuns and and thus you know you get bishops that could be commoners like saint pius x was a farm boy originally right so it doesn't really matter where you're from that you can in fact find your place in the church so in terms of the church government but ultimately it is a monarchy Right, the, the papal monarchy, and then you have the bishops, who are the papal, you know, the, the ecclesial aristocracy. Essentially, they rule over a diocese in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, they're not just the mere pope's representative; they are a successor to the apostle, even if they depend on their rights and jurisdiction for the pope. Say, mm-hmm. they are still ruling rightfully over a diocese. So, that that's Bellarmine's notion of government. Essentially, that's the form of government that Christ gave the church. So if you want to say that the United States Constitution is a carbon copy of the divine constitution of the Catholic Church, I think that's an argument that, that strains credulity uh, to the, in the highest level. You mean to so, do some massive gymnastics to do right. that? <laughs> you would. You, frankly, you would. The second thing is that uh, then people, and this is also Father Ryan originally does this in his article, uh, namely that, well, you know, so Robert Filmer writes this book to defend absolute monarchy, and he attacks Bellarmine all the time. He hates Bellarmine. But then people take on it and, and use Bellarmine as an argument against Filmer, such as Algernon Sidney, and then later John from him, John Locke. And they're all defending popular sovereignty, which Bellarmine defended. And therefore, he defended the, the United States Constitution. It's like, no, 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 that, that doesn't work. <laughs> all right, first of all, because when Bellarmine talks popular sovereignty, and you can see this in several places, I mean, the first is in, his work De Laetis, uh on the on the lady or on civil government, which is translated. Uh, hope I don't mess up her name. Um, Dr. Stefania Tutino, believe from UCLA, done a lot of good work translating Bellarmine's um, writings. So, you know, so her work brings out De Laetis, and in that work, you know, he he, he defends the basically the notion that the people are more or less the proximate source of authority, <clears throat> and so that when a king rules. A king doesn't rule merely by divine right. The polity is not his to do as he wills. The polity is there, I mean, sorry, the, the king is there to do, to act in the interest of the polity because the people are ultimately the proximate source of his authority through God by their tacit or explicit consent, right? And this is one thing that Bellarmine teaches us in, in many places, also in letters, also in uh, what he explicitly condemns religious liberty, he also talks about <clears throat> popular sovereignty and things of this sort. So Bellarmine's idea here is that when the people accept you know, their sovereign as, as their king, then they have accepted he is now truly their sovereign, almost like substance and accident. He's the king and they're the people. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you could never just separate yourself from that arrangement in Bellarmine's thinking except for the very gravest of reasons. And that's sort of a reaction against one of his teachers, uh, Mariana, who was almost an anarchist in some of the ways that in which uh, he addressed political economy, uh, one of the reasons I like him. But anyway, Mariana is saying basically anytime a community feels threatened or abused by their monarch, they can withdraw from obedience to their monarch. Right. And that's something Bellarmine says you can't do, except you know, for the gravest tyranny to defend life and limb and, and such in a, in a community. So... So that's essentially all that popular sovereignty means. It doesn't mean voting. It does not mean voting. So when Algernon Sidney and eventually and then later John Locke are arguing for Republican government based on you know popular sovereignty, the first step is to prove that the people have any rights in this arrangement at all against divine right of kings, which first gets its major philosophical explanation by King James I of England. So it, it, people had ruled essentially something like divine right henry the eighth certainly did but nobody had put it down into a system until james the first with the law of free monarchies 
and that's where you know his major you know published form. There's another book that James writes called uh, Basilica Doron, which means in Greek kingly gift, and he wrote it to his son, his older son Henry, who would have been Henry the Ninth. Might have changed a lot of stuff in England if he had been king instead of Charles. But anyway, that's that's again another tangent for another time. And in both places, he's very you know he gives the the whole philosophical explanations for why the king. Mm -hmm in his uh, arrangement, it rules by divine right, is in fact, you know, accountable to nobody, including the Pope, right, <laughs> including the church in any way. And, and that's the system that it will basically be followed or at least copied by a good number of monarchs, even Catholic ones. So for Bellarmine, this is a totally um, untraditional as well as a moral arrangement. Rather, the king rules for the common good because he gets his authority from God through the community, right? And that's basically all Bellarmine's point. So what Algernon and Sidney, uh, in Algernon and Sidney admits this in his work, uh, defend, you know, defending popular sovereignty, where he says that first, there's nothing special about this as you find it in Bellarmine. This is really just the common currency of Christendom. And Filmer, along with people like Hobbes, they decided to go after Bellarmine on the subject because he was just one of the more notable people who wrote on it. And B said that now that we've talked about the proof of popular sovereignty, now we have to explore how this is exercised in the state. And then he makes his arguments for why people should be able to elect representatives. And this is a completely different, you're, now you're going completely above and beyond anything Bellarmine ever wrote or advocated. On the flip side, Bellarmine was not against Republican government. He wasn't against the notion in and of itself that is if some community for example the republic of venice even though it's a bit more of an oligarchy uh and he says as much in his in on the roman pontiff mm -hmm. but nevertheless um you know he, he acknowledged any government that was properly received by at least the tacit consent of its people and continued to function as a valid legitimate government so the same thing if you know he were alive to see the united states he'd say well um, it's been a hundred years since that rebellion and, you know, cause I mean, the conditions of the American rebellion, he would never have supported. I mean, if you just put the abstract, even the way it's in our history books, you put that abstract, he would say, well, that's not good enough reason to, 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 to leave your sovereign. But at the same time, if he saw, well, it's been functioning for a hundred years since then, and the people have received and participate in this government, it, it's a valid government. And that, that's what he would say about it. So, but he never ceases to be a monarchist in all you know, and all his writings on the subject, he never advocates for the notion of election. He's not against it either. If it was it was necessary to do, you know, or, or community had accepted it and whatnot. So that's kind of the the, the confusion. And what it was it was uh, especially for an American. Uh, you want to, especially in the 1920s, where you're kind of on on two, you know, ends of things. On the one hand, uh, their continental counterparts, theologians in Europe were very much opposed to popular sovereignty because they saw it as having brought forth the evils of the French Revolution, Second French Revolution, uh, the Third French Republic, the Italian Revolution, 1848 Revolution, you name it. And especially the early 19th century is really the age of monarchy. It is the, and the, as you continue through the 1850s and 60s, it is the, the attempt to belatedly to preserve the order of monarchy against this kind of new elements of elective representation popular sovereignty and these sorts of things and some of it is is bad some of it is good but the, the way that the, the monarchs are just saying yeah we just need to keep all this stuff away so 1814 the, the world governments say to the pope all right we'll give you your states back we'll, we'll give you the papal states back but you got to scratch our backs too you've got to make sure you're getting your subjects your catholic subjects to back our monarchies whether we're a catholic or a Protestant monarchy, mm -hmm. so Habsburgs and um, Hanoverians, Habsburgs, whatever, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. you got to defend our governments. And the Pope says, okay. And then they start having revolutionary troubles in Italy because Napoleon brought in the whole French Revolution in Italy. People had been enshrined into various governmental aspects. Then papal government comes back, and the French troops came in, kicking everybody out of their, you know, their posts. So now, you know, the people are mad, and they're excellent fodder for recruitment into revolutionary movements. And that becomes, for example, the Carbonari. That becomes uh, other elements and incarnations of Italian Freemasonry. That becomes, um, you know, the Alta Vendita. They were actually called the Venditti, the shops, mm -hmm. which was like a code name for lodges. 
and then you have the Alta Vendita, the Alta Vendita, which were the higher shops. And then there's the Alta Vendita, which nobody knows if that even existed in that way, as in the, the higher shop that governed all the lower shops. That is the, you know, that, that might not have actually been in Italy itself. It might have been elsewhere or it might not have been there. Right. And then you have the Carbonari, who are a mix of all sorts of people, literally mean the charcoal, because <laughs> the former government officials were now out, you know, uh, turned out and now uh, warm in their hands by charcoal. Right. And so that uh, and, and they want to get back in. So that creates all the all the fomenting for eventually an Italian revolution. So anyway, so once you get to the late 19th century, early 20th century, a lot of European theologians writing on political economy think popular sovereignty is bad because it brought all the bad stuff we saw in the 19th century. We can't have that again. So for a Catholic in the United States, especially a political thinker, you've got a twofold. Uh, one, the, uh, you know, how do we be good Americans? In, in a country that is largely hostile to Catholics, uh, or at least at its founding. Two, how do we be good Catholics and vindicate the government and we show our proper patriotism to our own form of government when a lot of our opposite numbers over in Europe are not so keen on our system of government as such, right? And so that, that becomes one of those problematic things. And so, oh, look, Bellarmine vindicated our government, right? And then the arguments as they get more and more tenuous, they get more and more accepted because, oh, this is our way of being good Americans and being good Catholics. And the thing is, you can be a good American and a good Catholic and not create phony stories. You know, the same thing is true with um, you know, a number of other things like George Washington's conversion. That's another one of those mythical pieces that has zero evidence behind it. If it was true, that'd be great. Actually, I'd love that. And But there's no evidence that even shows it's remote, remotely has the appearance of truth whatsoever. It's, it's again, more of this kind of... Uh, I don't know, wishful thinking so that we can get our, our American, you know, corner, uh, get the Catholic Church to some little corner of the American table. And not, that's to, kind of that. not to turn this into an uh, American thing, but I mean, right. they bring that up, but they'll never bring why uh, Bishop Carroll was named Bishop by Franklin <laughs> saying that, oh, yeah, we walked from here, right. Philadelphia to Quebec. And we never spoke about religion once. That's once. my guy. <laughs> and, he's, and he was excommunicated in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> so the only bishop that could have consecrated him didn't like him and wasn't going to, to forgive the excommunication. So they had to send him to England to get uh, consecrated by Bishop Challoner. But um, yeah, that, that's another story. So I mean, it's good and the bad. And the thing is, and the point of bringing all this in is not, oh, well, we can't love our country. We can't be good Americans. You can't. You got to go burn the flag, right? No, absolutely not. You can be a good, good Catholic and a good American and participate in all the things of civic government to the extent that you think it's prudent or good or useful. And, uh, you know, and at the same time, we don't, you know, need to kind of strain these things beyond their actual historical reality. You want to make St. Robert Bellarmine a patron of the United States? That's awesome. That's great. Let's do it. But, um, you know, but his, the argument that his political philosophy paved the way for the Constitution, it just doesn't follow yeah, that or thomas aquinas happen. and him both right. wanting would have been right. on the side of revolutionaries right it, they would by by the things they've said they would not have mm -hmm. uh for bellerman it um and it might have been more of bellerman's hyper reaction to mariano who said that you can withdraw from your king for any reason whatsoever and 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 bellerman who said that you could not so it because he just looked at it and said nope so it, it, only the gravest um, you know, re like if you're sending the soldiers to come in all your communities and, and murder, and that was not happening in the United States and in the colonies at that time. So, you know, so maybe the, you know, and I, I hosted a podcast with Charles Coulomb many years ago on why, you know, rethinking the American Revolution, mm -hmm. you know, and I certainly have kind of my own kind of take on, on things that uh, a lot of people aren't going to like, and that's fine. Who cares? Say it was necessary, right? Bellarmine would not have considered those reasons to be necessary. At least from the way he wrote back in the 16th and 17th century, he would not have. So we could put it that way. Like I say, you're so, not trying to bash. You're just trying to be an honest look. And, and that's right. And he could still love him and say, well, he's still a great saint. And, and um, so anyway, so that was one of the things that I don't think I've ever gone into depth on. I've been uh, writing yeah. on it. I'm just trying to get all my ducks in a row before I pen something on that. Um, and then the other thing is um, absolutely his love for the poor. I mean, he absolutely loved 
support. And so, and he was so, um, and any money that came into his hand that he didn't need for like, for example, when he was a Cardinal, which he hated being a Cardinal, but, uh, anytime, you know, he got money that he didn't need for any official office that he had to deal with either with Pope or for the men who worked for him or the, you know, his, um, the servants that he employed in the house or whatever, if he didn't need money for them, it all went to the poor. It didn't matter what he wanted. He was actually called the Novella Pavarello, the, the new, uh, the new uh, St. Francis, right? St. Francis is called the Pavarello because of his love for poverty. So, Il Nuovo Pavarello, I think it's a novella. Nuovo, nu, nuovo Pavarello. And he was a uh, just, just absolutely devoted to whatever it would be. He had his cardinal's ring, and he would be getting in the coach, and he didn't have any money on him because he'd already expended his alms, and somebody would ask him for for alms. And so he would take the cardinal's ring, and he'd say, now take this over to a pawnbroker on the Via del Scrafa, and he'll give you uh, the right price for it. And he's already worked this out. So then later, Bellarmine would have to get the money back because this would be a massive scandal if he pawned his cardinal's ring. And he would get the money, and he would buy it back. And according to uh, one of his early biographers, Folagatti, uh, Bellarmine did this on a repeated <laughs> that that ring was going back and forth <laughs> through that pawn shop all the time. <laughs> um, again, another time uh, he uh, he had a head of house named Guidotti, who was very efficient, competent manager of house, but he was always ripping his hair out because St. Robert's giving away all the cash <laughs> whenever he could. And then somebody asked him for alms once, and he didn't even have the cardinal's ring. So again, according to um, Folagatti, because I think it's in the canonization docs. Uh, he told Guidotti to go and get the uh, the silver vase that was given by Cardinal Aldebrandini, this Pope Clement VIII's nephew, and go sell that for the money that would be needed. And then, and then he's like, "No, no, that's gonna cause that's gonna make the Pope really angry. <laughs> it's gonna make Aldebrandini mad. And he's gonna complain to the Pope. You can't give that kind of slight because you know, when you think about why that, because people will be like, who cares? Guy needs money, right? Well, what's that worth? Well." If you think about, especially Italian culture and the way in which people take advantage, like let's just think of you gave someone a gift and you thought they'd really like it, and especially with some costly, and then you go and it's gone. <laughs> oh, I had to do it to do this. Well, you feel a certain slight about that. If he really cared about me, he wouldn't have did that. All the more for an Italian <laughs> times ten. So it's uh, it's a Guidotti's thinking of Pope's nephew getting really ticked off about this. So instead, he says, no, 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 I, I actually, I, I think I've got some money hidden away that I was hoping to hide from you, St. <laughs> Robert, so you wouldn't give it away to all the poor. And, and he pulls that, and St. Robert also knew that Guidotti had money hidden away, and this is just his way of getting it out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing he would do, because again, as I mentioned, he hated being a cardinal. So St. Robert Bellarmine says in his autobiography that he chose the Jesuits specifically, not just because of the influence of his teachers, in his hometown in uh, Montepulciano, but also because he, he had developed spiritually to the point where he had no need of worldly desires, of, of, of worldly goods, offices, posts of importance. He wanted to be somewhere where he could serve and be unimportant. And the Jesuits took an explicit vow, still do actually, not to accept any offices, any honors or dignities in the church, uh, such as a bishop, a cardinal, or a pope. Unless, of course, it's under obedience. Isn't there somebody you ought to tell about that? <laughs> Actually, it's funny that since I bring that up, because there's a somebody wrote an article that I was reading saying, oh, who dispensed Pope Francis from his vow? Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not anything that invalidates anything, but it's one. It's interesting to look at. Well, did, did they take these things serious enough where he actually took the time to get that? And as the, the article went on to show, um, you know, that. He simply mentioned to the Jesuit house there that he had been elected and never seeks to actually formally, probably because in his own mind, he was thinking, well, um, I guess I've been elected, so here it is. Um, but, it, but it is a curious thing. Is that, that where they know, get the idea of black pope because of the cassock and not being able to take it, just have to wear the cassock? Right. Uh, that, that's different. The whole thing about the black pope is a joke, um, okay. because when you get into 17th century propaganda against the Jesuits, the argument was that the Jesuits really controlled the the, the pope, and so that the, Jes the superior of the Jesuits was the black pope, because he was the, um, you know, he, he kind of managed the church from behind the scenes. That, that's actually why, and he didn't wear white, he wore the cassock. So that's why the, um, the black cassock. So that's why that, that, that's where that phrase comes from. 
And so the Jesuits took that up kind of jokingly and said, hey, they want to mock us for this, let, let's run with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and especially if you look at uh, Sixtus V, Clement VIII, Paul V, it uh, didn't matter. The, the superior of the Jesuits had no ability to move them to do anything. And in fact, they were always fighting with each other because especially Sixtus V, he wanted the Jesuits to take on certain reforms, especially to some of their vows. And they were absolutely resisting him however best they could. And <clears throat> Sixtus V got, got really frustrated with them with Aquaviva, who was the superior general. And then again, uh, also in Clement VIII, uh, you know, the superior general is not able to make Clement VIII move on the question of efficacious grace, which is a big discussion, um, which I don't want to take up because it, I, well, I've talked about it before when I was more prepared for it, but it's, it involves so much complicated stuff in the theology of grace. And I don't want to touch that with a 100 foot pole because the theology of grace is such a complicated thing. You're as social distancing yourself. And, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am. Non, uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, so back to Bellarmine. So Bellarmine, um, he, so he became a Jesuit because they take no vows. They uh, they take vows not to take these offices, mm -hmm. which means he could serve Christ truly and not be put in a position where you have to <clears throat> take some some office somewhere and be taken away from that, which is how he looked at it, especially with the cardinal. So when he was in Rome for a good number of years, uh, Clement VIII had been Pope. Clement VIII in general was generally a fairly good pope. He had St. Philip Neri as a spiritual director. Now, the writing should have been on the wall for St. Robert when he forced Cardinal Baronius to, beca to become a cardinal. So Baronius was an oratorian. He was a disciple of St. Philip Neri. And the pope made him his confessor. And then the pope made him a cardinal. And Baronius did everything he could to get out of it, and the pope ordered him. So Bellarmine should have been kind of uh, aware, but he wasn't paying any attention. And then, lo and behold, he is, uh, you know, picked up in one day by a papal envoy and says, you're, you're going to be made a cardinal tomorrow. Ben Bellarmine was working in the sacred penitentiary. Uh, the, the term sacred penitentiary always confuses people. It's not a special papal prison. It's, it's the office that deals out <clears throat> any, any discussions and difficulties in penance, mm -hmm. uh, resolves decisions that, that involve like really complicated things involving the, the administration of that sacrament, as well as reserve confession. Somebody confesses something that's reserved explicitly to Rome, such as a priest that say violated the oath of secrecy on the confession told the confession right now that's got to go through the sacred penitentiary in order to be brought to the pope so that the pope can offer forgiveness and then he'll be restored although he won't be allowed to can be a confessor again at least that's what used to happen but <clears throat> anyway so that's where he was working and they tell him this and he's like no so quickly he goes to all his friends and says, i've made a cardinal oh how do i get out of it please tell me what i can do Make, can i flee the city he actually entertained fleeing the city because and it becomes why very shortly the, um, and the people, say the, the, his friends there at the, the, the office of the sacred penitentiary, they said, well, probably you should submit to the Pope. It's probably what you should do. And because God wouldn't allow it to come about otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so then he, he goes to the Pope and um, or to see the Pope, and the Pope refuses to see him because he knows Bellarmine's going to try to get out of it, might even argue him out of it. Then the consistory happens, and Bellarmine's waiting his turn, and then finally he gets on his knees and begs the Pope not to be made a cardinal, and the Pope basically orders him under pain of excommunication to get up and receive the cardinalate. <laughs> and so he does. So then, but with the letters he writes, and this is where it's key, why is he acting that way? I mean, come on, cardinal? How bad can that be? Being a cardinal, especially at that time, more or less made you a prince of the church. We always talk about that now, but in those days, really, you got yourself... Uh, you, generally, it was a great occasion to abuse the office and make yourself rich in the process, even even these days after Trent. Gain a lot of political power, not really do much in, in terms of saving souls. And on top of that, as a cardinal, you'd usually be in charge of this or that commission. And so you'd, your job would be constantly going to uh, sit on whatever commission the Pope has you sitting on and carrying out this or that business in a, in a more formal fashion than he had been doing previously. So... And plus, also by the laws of the church in this time, he would no longer be a Jesuit as a cardinal, at least, at least legally speaking. So he'd be freed up from all the Jesuit rules, promises, vows, etc. So what he ends up doing is he writes to his friends, to uh, to people, to Baronius, right, what do I do? How do I save my soul? I've only got 10 servants at the least that I can do in, in order to attend on the Pope with the right ceremony and at the same time, you know, but there's so many I need to get a second carriage, and it's ridiculous to have two carriages. But otherwise, I can't bring ten people that I need in order to sit to wait on the Pope's needs. And he's, so he's writing about all these things, and he's terrified. 
he really believes that his salvation is now imperiled because he can no longer do the work uh, that he was doing as a as a priest sanctifying souls preaching and, and whatnot now all of his work was being frittered away in, the, in these congregations doing this work and waiting on the pope in in court like royal court you know with all these servants that he has to manage now and, and have be solicitous for their well-being their uh, that they're paid well and also their spiritual life so but eventually he gets with it he does uh you know get a regimen that works for him and he is far more at ease as it goes but he still hated being a cardinal as later shown I, I just reverted to the controversy of efficacious grace and that was a big debate between the jesuits and the, and the dominicans about uh the, the nature of like a the de auxiliaries when you receive a grace mm -hmm. and, and it infallibly works what's the role of the will is in that and so it's big debate between molina and banyas uh, banyas the dominican molina the jesuit and thus give, you get the name of molinism right from that so again i don't want to touch with the 10-foot pole so bellarmine was in between those two positions himself but at the same time, he just kind of wanted peace, and so he would. But he was also afraid because the society, the Jesuits, were being heavily demonized in this process by the proponents of the other side. And he was, and he knew Clement VIII kind of more sided with the Dominicans on the subject. So what you know, he was afraid of what would happen to the order in terms of its prestige. And so he was always weighing in, even for people like he didn't agree with Molina on a lot of things. But he was weighing in on that side, only at least for defending peace and the Pope not pronouncing anything definitive. And eventually the Pope got tired because uh, he had nothing he could say against Bellarmine, but he also didn't want to deal with it because he'd already made up his mind. So he decides to dismiss Bellarmine from the papal court by making him the Bishop of Capua. And within 20 days, Bellarmine was out of the city, which was so quick on the point of almost giving offense accidentally because the Pope had no idea how much Bellarmine hated being a cardinal. And he showed it because here's it being a bishop that's an apostolic office you're a successor to the apostles i can start doing what i'm supposed to be doing again and so he set all his affairs in order paid the workmen their wages through the next month and then was gone and made his way to capua which is down by naples would have been a fairly lengthy journey it's territory he knew he used to be a jesuit superior near naples so anyway and there hadn't been a bishop there in like 80 years and the place was a mess and in three years he completely turns it around and makes it a very model place all around and it's um something actually maybe writing a little bit more about recent robert bellarmine as a bishop he was only a bishop for very, three very short years mm -hmm. but he largely became considered a model for how to run a diocese it wasn't uh borromeo didn't he use him for his model when no he didn't he was previous uh, borromeo i think was already dead by the time saint robert became a bishop okay so uh unless well, i'm mistaken that's... but but you know actually it was uh, saint john fisher that for a male used as a model. That's right, Fisher. Right. Right, long day. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I probably made half a dozen gaps in all this anyway. So. <laughs> well, Ryan, I appreciate you, man. And uh, mediatrixpress.com is where you get the books. Um, what other works are you just, have you came out with any new books recently? The I'm about to. In fact, just as we got on, I saw the notification of the proofs being ready for the uh, Spirago Catechism. So, um, you know, people have listened to Father Ripiger's talks on your on your channel. At some point, at least two talks, I think he's talked about the Catechism explained by Father Francis Spirago, and it's um, big book. And actually, mine's bigger because I brought the print up by two points. And it's a really great exhaustive treatise on all the points of Catechism, points of doctrine. And uh, was, so you get those points, and then you got larger explanations around it. So again, sort of like this more classical way what we talked about. So it's based on the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and it carries out more further explanation of all these points. For the most part, it's fairly timeless, and I updated certain antiquated uh, language in it to bring it to make it a little let more timeless than. Um, and so people always wonder, oh, did you change anything in the book? Actually, I didn't change anything of any theological value. I changed very little mm -hmm. except for very antiquated words. So, for example, drinking saloon. Um, well, nobody, I mean, granted, you get it. But I said no. So I changed that to bars. That, at least in American English, when we say a bar, we mean that that's what we mean. And, and likewise, uh, certain other terms that were just dated, uh, you get the word idiot which in the 19th century was a technical term mm -hmm. for somebody who was mentally retarded. And so I had to replace that because now it's obviously, a now everybody is. you know, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, especially, uh, no, no, never mind. 
Gonna get a rag on the government again. But um, anyway, <laughs> I'm gonna have to remember to use the drinking saloon one next. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> going off to the drinking saloon. <laughs> so um, anyway, so that that's that's the type of stuff that when I when I fix antiquated languages, mostly things of that sort mm-hmm. that that are fixed. Um, uh, otherwise, it's exactly the same as it always was. Um, you know, a few helpful footnotes here and there. So that's the. Um, so it's going to be about 800 pages or so. And that, and that's because the table of contents itself is like 60 pages because it covers the entire, you know, every page of the work practically with, with notes and headings and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's easy to find stuff. Um, great cover, if I may say so. But anyway, so that was, so we're looking forward to that coming out. I have uh, working currently on volume three of St. Alphonsus's moral theology. People have been asking about that mm-hmm. and that's been, um, it's stupid. But I was working on reading that uh, the day my daughter died, and I hadn't been willing to touch it until like about two weeks ago. So that, uh, which again, is stupid, but it's, I couldn't pick it up and deal with it just because of that. So mm-hmm. anyway, so now I'm back in it, and I'm hoping to get that to my editors pretty soon. Then more Bellarmine, like I said, I'm working on a couple of books, and I'll figure out which one is going to be next. And hoping in the next, uh, you know, seven months or so, just become a flurry of, act, of, of uh, getting new and new in, in more stuff out. Fantastic. Yeah, when the catechism comes out, it's an incredible catechism. Just a must-have, basically. Well, Brian, we'll definitely have to have you on when we do the catechism one. Mm-hmm. Promote that a little bit. Talk to maybe some questions. Uh, no one's had anything today. But, uh, hey, man, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll talk to you later. All right, thank you.